Before we get started on today's episode, a word of caution. In today's show, we'll be diving into topics that include mental health struggles. While we strive to approach these issues thoughtfully and provide valuable insights, it's important to note that we are, of course, not mental health professionals. So this content should not serve as any kind of substitute for qualified medical advice. And if you or someone you know is dealing with mental health issues, we urge you to seek professional help immediately. National helplines and resources are available and immediate intervention is critical for effectively coping and managing these kinds of concerns. With that, on with the show. You're listening to The Startup Podcast, a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high-growth disruption the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. Hey, I'm Chris. And I'm Yaniv. I'm Mike. Now, today is a very special episode, the first of what will be a short series deep diving into a very important and under-discussed topic, and that is founder mental health. A lot gets talked about the toil and struggle, the loneliness of being a founder, but less is talked about the inevitable toll that this struggle takes on the human being behind all the headlines. And not talking about it, of course, just makes it worse. We've heard from many of you, actually, that this is a topic you would like us to cover on the podcast. So we are thrilled to have multiple-time founder Mike Philby on the show today to share his story and help bring this topic out into the open where it belongs. Like many founders, Mike has had a challenging journey with his mental health, one which led him to leave behind the incredibly successful startup he co-founded. Mike, you've been generous enough to offer to share your experience with other founders. So welcome to the Startup Podcast. We're really excited to do this with you. Thank you so much for, for having me. I really appreciate it. I've listened to a few episodes. They're great. I'm not a huge podcast listener, but maybe I will be after I uh, you know hear myself talk and fall in love with myself again. We'll see. That's right. It's a strange feeling. I strangely do quite like listening to myself talk on the podcast. I don't know what that says about me. So where we'd really love to start, Mike, is with your journey. And I guess especially ButcherBox, which is one of the startups you co-founded, which became very large in the US. But for our international audience, we'd love you to tell us a bit more about ButcherBox itself and about your journey there. Yeah, absolutely. So ButcherBox delivers 100% grass-fed beef and organic chicken and pork directly to your door. They're in the US and they're nationwide. I got involved with ButcherBox because the CEO and founder was a mentor of mine with the first company I started. When my company was going down and the company he was working at previously was having a change in CEO, he asked if I wanted to join him and develop ButcherBox and run marketing there. Today they have, I think, just over 200 full-time employees and they're doing over $500 million in annual recurring revenue. So this is a very fast, high-growth startup. You were involved there from early on as head of marketing. So tell us about the experience of being part of this high-growth machine, this rocket ship. I absolutely loved it. I was there for the first four years. I built out a 26-person marketing team, and I just loved going to work every day, and I didn't care about working long hours. I certainly had my struggles on the mental health side. I think a lot of people in the company did. I was probably at the biggest extreme. I've always been a very feeling person, so maybe that's part of it. But yeah, it was the best experience in my life. It was a really special group. I actually just got together last week with some of the marketing team, as well as the CEO in Moab, Utah, and did some ATVing and rafting on the Colorado River for five days. So still very close with a lot of people in the company, still a shareholder and rooting for them every day. Can you kind of go back to the beginning, perhaps? What was it like to get started? And what was it like when you reached an inflection point? What was going on around you? Yeah, so the timing for the business was perfect. We launched a Kickstarter campaign in the fall of 2015. 
I think it was the month before the front page of Consumer Reports. Are y'all familiar with Consumer Reports magazine? Just for anyone who isn't familiar with it, right? It reports on companies and whether they're good, bad, or ugly and tries to create an objective rating for them, right? Yeah, and products and services as well. So it'll say like, hey, here are the top like midsize SUVs. Here are the top 10 vacuums. Anyways, the front page of Consumer Reports the month prior had a big picture of a cow and it said wanted safe beef in red capital letters across the cover. And they said that if you're going to eat beef, it should be grass-fed, grass-finished, which is the exact product we were queuing up to sell. So the timing for the business really could not have been better. Do you remember like a moment or a period where it's like, hey, this thing is kicking off, like we're reaching an inflection point. In previous episodes, we've talked about like product market fit. You just feel it, right? That it felt like this thing is crackling and it's clear we're onto something. Yeah, it was when Chris Kresser, who's one of the biggest paleo influencers, sent a dedicated email blast to his fans offering free bacon in their first box. And we got 300 people to sign up in 48 hours. That was more than we were doing in monthly signups. And it was in two days. So then the strategy was just, okay, let's put all of our resources to finding more Chris Cressers, giving them the same promo and experimenting with different promos. Another inflection point was when we did the free bacon for life promo. I remember <laughs> the CEO had Stripe on his phone and it would ding, or at least you could set it to ding every time a new subscriber signed up. So we were playing like a drinking game until nine at night, just passing around the phone. And if it dinged while you were holding it, you had to, you know, take a drink. That was a really <laughs> fun night. So how were you feeling during these kind of moments of elation? Like I imagine this was the highs of startup life, right? Yeah. I mean, that was everything I ever wanted since I was a kid. Hawking baseball cards, Beanie Babies, Pokemon cards. I would have like yard sales outside my parents' driveway. I would sell cards at recess. I told people come up to me and they're like, hey, you ripped me off on that, you know, Charizard or whatever. I think they're all fair market prices and they're probably worth more today. So I think they got a good deal. But um, yeah, I've just always been like fascinated by entrepreneurship. Like I really don't care much for money, but I ended up making a good amount of it just because I was doing what I love. I really think that's a central piece to my story is I never did anything for the money. I always did it because it was what I wanted to do. And so at what point did that elation start to feel like it was diminishing or you kind of turned around and realized, hey, hang on a second, this isn't fun anymore. I think it was the pressure. I come from a family where my dad is, he's a bit of a softy now, but you know, he was Mr. Tough Guy, would go on 100 mile bike rides, would go to the gym for two hours and just kind of like power through life. And I think I thought I could just like make it work. I thought I could do anything if I was just tough enough and if I worked hard enough. And I never really gave myself a break. Even when I'd go to the gym to like take a break, I'd be running on a 7% incline doing interval sprints on the treadmill. And then doing like push-ups and burpees and planks for an hour straight. Just too much. Not enough slowness in my life. But the other big problem was there was just a lot of pressure. The buck stopped with me when it came to growth. We were hell-bent on growing extremely fast. Most years we were tripling revenues. And there was a lot of visibility into the goals. They were just written on whiteboards when you walked into the office. Where we stood and what the goal was and what percentage we were to goal and what big promos were outstanding that were coming up that could hopefully close the gap if need be. And fortunately, we blew through our goals almost always, but I felt a lot of heat anytime that we were not on pace. If we were even like three percentage points behind where we were supposed to be, I felt really badly about myself. And I felt like I was letting the team down despite it being a 26 person team at the time that I was leaving. I just put too much on my shoulders. I think I wasn't saying, Hey, like I need help. Hey, I'm really stressed. I just kind of cloaked it all. It was not healthy. I tried to be a warrior and I didn't need to be. It's fascinating, Mike. And thanks for being so open about all this. 
One thing that it brings to mind as you speak is there's this fantastic other podcast called Founders by David Sandra. A lot of you probably already listened to it. It's become very well known. He's a bit of an obsessive himself, right? And basically every week he just dives deep into the story of one particular founder. And he doesn't just do tech founders. He talks military leaders, founders of nations, everything back in history. He's just, he reads biography like crazy. His current thing is the story of the founder always begins with the father. And you mentioned your dad, which is sort of really interesting to me, right? And I think part of being a founder in a way is we're maybe not the mentally healthiest group of people to start with, because I think a lot of founders, not all founders, but a lot of founders have a chip on their shoulder or something to prove to someone to be influenced by that and have that level of intensity to build something from nothing. It requires maybe this sort of driving force that is not necessarily the healthiest thing and is therefore something that needs to be managed if you're going to not let it consume you. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And yeah, that podcast is great. I've listened to the episode about Steve Jobs, which was good, but also made me stressed out because who can be Steve Jobs? <laughs> but I was like trying to be when I was listening to it. I was like, oh yeah, I'm going I'm to do that. And I was like, nope, that's not me. But yeah, I definitely think there's part of it, part of like the father, you know, just looking up to my dad, trying to work as hard as he did. He would get up at 5 a.m. I could hear him leaving the door when I would like get up and he'd already showered and ate breakfast and be out the door to provide for the family. And I definitely had a chip on my shoulder and Mike did too. And I think everybody did for the first maybe eight or so people who worked at ButcherBox. And when people ask like, why was it successful beyond the timing? I think it's that everyone had something to prove. I had spent the last six years working on a startup that I dropped out of college to do that didn't work out. I worked seven days a week. I had no social life and I was losing money. I was overdrafting on my Bank of America account every month, borrowing money from my parents. I was living in my parents' house. And I remember closing that down and just being like, this can't be happening. Like this was supposed to be it. This was supposed to be successful. And it's like, who am I to think that it's going to be successful? But I did. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I was, I was 18 when I started it. With Butcher Box, I just wanted to give it everything I possibly could. So once those green lights were coming up and things were looking good, I was all in. I mean, it was the only thing I was doing because I wasn't going to miss that opportunity. And Mike felt the same way. And by the way, Mike, I know you're not talking about yourself in the third person, but your co-founder is, of course, also named Mike. So just yes. <laughs> for the listeners, in case it's confusing. I'm not that crazy. <laughs> not yet. The other interesting thing that I got out of hearing you speak before, Mike, and would be interested in having you reflect on it, is it's often talked about, I know I've talked about the startup life and the founder life of being a bit of a roller coaster. the highs are highs and the lows are low and so on, but it occurs to me hearing you speak, the roller coaster is not quite the right metaphor because you can have the highs and lows at the same time. Hearing you speak and hearing the joy and excitement of what you were doing at ButcherBox, hearing you say you would do it all over again, right? It's nearly like you're experiencing the highs and the lows and the stress at the same time. Is that right? I think that's exactly it. And eventually the body kicks in and it's like, hey, I'm here too. And I'm shutting down. You're mad. That's what essentially happened to me is I was passing out at work events because I was just completely exhausted. I like passed out in a bathroom with like throw up all over me and then had to be taken to an Uber to the ER threw up all over the Uber. My buddies like paid him off with cash so he wouldn't like do the throw up fee for like drunk people or whatever. And yeah, that happened three times. Not exactly that, but going to the ER and, and even spending some time in the ICU. So I was just, I was sacrificing myself for the company. And yeah, I would definitely take that back. If I wasn't working as hard as I was working, the company wouldn't have been as successful. But now hearing me say that, like, who cares? If the company was 80% of what it was when I left, that's not going to make any difference. They're huge. Mike doesn't need another two and a half million dollars. I don't need another $50,000. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't matter. 
You described these, I would describe them as fairly frightening, fairly overt events, right? I'm curious at that point, the first time, second time, third time, is that when you said, hey, I'm burned out here? Or were you in denial about it somehow and still pushing through? When was the moment where you thought this is burnout or this is unsustainable? I think it was the moment when I realized it was stress. I went through like every possible cardiac test and I had a 48 hour EEG where it looked like I was out of the matrix and I had this like thing on my scalp of dreadlock wires coming out of it that I had to sleep with and keep on. And after doing just every possible test, seeing neurologists and all this stuff and it's all like, nope, you're all good. You're all good there. You're all good here. You're all good there. And it was like, okay, like clearly I'm just so unbelievably stressed out that this is why it's happening. And that's like a pretty frightening realization. One thing I'm curious to understand is, were there warning signs that you ignored? Did you actually know you were stressed? Or is this something where you'd gotten so focused and fixated that you were actually completely disconnected from what was happening in your body? I knew that I was stressed. And I think I just kept pushing it down. And because I was so stimulated, like every hour of every day with work and then killing myself at the gym, I just didn't allow myself time to really comprehend what was happening to me and my body. As you're talking, I'm reminded of two times at Uber where this sort of happened to me. When I first joined the company, I felt an enormous amount of imposter syndrome. I was surrounded by AAA players. It was the first bigger company I'd been a part of. And I started to feel very foggy, like I'd lost IQ points. I went to a doctor and said, hey, I'm feeling very foggy in the brain, hard to concentrate, hard to make choices. And he said to me, have you got any new stressors in your life? I said, well, I just started a new high profile, high pressure job. And he's like, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> uh, that didn't occur to me at all. And then later, much later, I was involved in a really hardcore, you know, Game of Thrones political shit fight. There was really no other way to describe it. Every meeting was with large groups of very important decision makers. And I was the one advocating against the grain for something very big and bold and ambitious. And it was everyone versus me, more or less. And I started getting chest pain, just feeling really, really bad. And there was one point where I went to the emergency clinic down the road from the Uber headquarters and they rushed me through because I was having chest pain and they got me in there and I'm doing EKGs and stuff. And I was still dialing into one of these come to Jesus important meetings where there was a big decision being made where my project was on the line. And the team was like, what are you doing? Where are you? Am I an emergency clinic with chest pain? They're like, why are you calling into this meeting with chest pain? And I was still like, I needed to be there. I needed to participate. I needed to save this project. And yeah, as you said, Mike, like who the hell cares? Like who cares? Uber didn't need me to be successful. And the moment I left, decisions were changed and code was rewritten and initiatives were rethought. And my impact at Uber has probably felt literally zero at this point. You know, why do we as entrepreneurs, as founders, as people who get so emotionally involved, twist ourselves in the knots sometimes for these things, right? Yeah. I'm sorry you have to go through that. That sounds really hard. I think we're largely like products of our society and it's kind of fucked up. I mean, work is like the main thing that people talk about. It's the main thing that we stress about. It's what keeps us up at night. I just spent those five days in Moab in Utah with all these guys from ButcherBox and work was pretty much all we talked about. Like, I don't know how their kids are doing. And I don't want it to be that way, but it's just how it was. And I did like feel it when I was there. I was like, wow, four years later, it's still everything to us. And I'm trying to break away from it. Truthfully, like the nonprofit I just started, I didn't want to start that company. I started it because I felt like I needed to as a way to like raise awareness and give back. But I'd rather work a nine to five. I'd rather work at a farm. I'd rather travel. 
I was the first person to tell every young person to go be an entrepreneur. But now I'm much more cautious because I've seen what it can do to somebody. And I think that a lot of my friends who took a more conventional path are a lot happier and a lot healthier than I am, or at least they've had a lot steadier. I've had some really big highs and I have a lot of flexibility with my finances and stuff, but I don't really care about money. So it's almost like every company should be required to have like a mental health coach, like some certified person who's like checking in with everybody all the time, almost like separate of HR. I, I, I don't know what the solution is, but I honestly don't think, I don't think it's sustainable. And I don't know if I'd want my kids to be entrepreneurs. And that really like crushes me because it's been my identity and it's been my life. But I really think something's got to change with our culture or with entrepreneurship. It's not fair to the entrepreneurs. You talked about this being a cultural thing. I think that's true. And I think it varies wildly from location to location. I remember one of the times I was getting really burned out in Silicon Valley. I just needed to get out of there. And I had booked a flight back to Australia just to kind of have a vacation in Australia. I kind of smashed out this blog post that I called the downside of HEA, hyper expectation and ambition syndrome. I felt like I was surrounded by people who were suffering from this hyper expectations and ambition syndrome. And it was in the water. Everyone I met was ambitious and had high expectations for themselves and for each other. And it was driving me mad. I was trying to keep up and it was who I had become. And then I spent, I want to say two or three weeks in Australia and I felt the opposite culture. I felt everybody in my sleepy town of Brisbane, and this is some years ago now, it's changed a little bit. There's a lot of entrepreneurship here and things, but everybody was kind of asleep and kind of very comfortable in their place. And lived only a few blocks or a few neighborhoods from their home where they grew up. And I started to feel like I was not achieving enough. Even after two or three weeks, I felt like I was falling asleep there. And I wrote the opposite article. I was ready to go back. I was ready to get back into it. And so prior to leaving, I wrote the upsides of hyper expectation and ambition blog posts. This is all on my website. And I wrote the reasons why I do love Silicon Valley and actually wanted to get back into it. My point is that this is very much a product of our environment in many ways, or our environment intersecting with our nature. You know, we are a global podcast and I want to highlight, you may or may not be experiencing this, or you may or may not be having this imposed on you through externalities, or you may be imposing it on yourself in some ways. You need to think about all of those possibilities for yourself. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I do feel like it's very circumstantial. I just got back from a trip to Croatia and yeah, they didn't seem obsessed with work there and it seemed a lot more fun. And I was very envious of not growing up there. I think it's interesting, Chris, like I semi agree with you in the sense that I think where the cultural difference manifests more is actually for employees, right? Like you were telling your story at Uber as a non-founder, as an employee, and you still experience that level of intensity. But I think when becoming a founder, there is such a strong element of self-selection and so much of this sort of personal rather than cultural drive that comes with it, that perhaps the regional variation is a bit less than you might think. I do think that folks listening all over the world will identify with this intense drive and this sense of willing to be self-sacrificing for it. Yeah. I mean, I do think being a founder is a certain kind of psychosis and I've obviously been a multi-time founder, but I think the problem I was experiencing at Uber is I was treating it as if I was the founder. The pitch to me was come be the CEO and founder of the developer platform team. And I took that like straight to my soul. I was acting as a founder and one of the cultural values at Uber was be an owner, not a renter, right? Basically be a founder. The irony of that value, just sorry, total aside, but the irony of that value, given the business that Uber is in, is just incredible. <laughs> that's such a good point. And, and also, that's true. Not irony, but they're asking their employees to be owners, not renters. But let me see the cap table. 
Let me see how skewed yeah. that thing is. I mean, yeah. you're asking people to be owners who have one hundredth of the shares you do on a sunny day. So I don't know. I have a little bit of trouble with that at times. There is a narrative, right, that there is the rat race and then there is being a founder of your own company. And one of the reasons I did leave Silicon Valley in the end was because I felt like it was just another kind of rat race. There were investors and advisors and what have you who were riding founders into the ground. And it was a bit of a churn and burn process. And yeah, it's great if you're an investor and you're hyping up the role of founder and hyping up the role of building high growth companies. And these young, often young founders are driving themselves into the ground for a diminishing piece of the pie. Not to say anything of their employees who are also promised that same cascading vision of you have a piece of this company, although it's diminishingly small, you have all of these people burning themselves out in an alternative kind of rat race. You may be a part owner, but not really, not really. Yeah. So Michael, I'd love to return to your story a bit. So you were at ButcherBox, you were passing out, you were completely physically and emotionally exhausted, I suppose. Tell us about your decision to walk away from that and how you experienced that whole part of the story. Yeah, that was definitely the hardest decision of my life because at the time ButcherBox was my life. So all I knew is that I couldn't continue. And that was like a really sobering realization. And some of my mentors were trying to get me to stay another year and a half or two so that the rest of my equity would vest because I had close to 10% of the company and I had to end up forfeiting like 4% of the 10%, which, you know, it's a pretty meaningful amount. So a lot of people I'm sure would have just stayed another year and a half, two years and close to doubled their equity stake in a company that was conservatively worth 150, $250 million at the time. But I basically realized that no dollar amount is worth your health and I had red lights going off everywhere. And it was actually writing a Mother's Day card that I kind of came to the conclusion that I need to leave and I need to give my notice tomorrow because my mom has always encouraged me to go my own way in life and just follow my gut. And I knew that this was what I needed to do. But uh, yeah, my, I mean, my heart was beating through my chest when I asked Mike when he came to the office if I could chat with him for 10 minutes. It was definitely one of the scariest moments of my life. What about afterwards? You, you gave him your notice. You said you finished up the next day. What were the next few days, weeks, months like for you? Yeah, so I think I, I left after maybe three or so weeks. I was able to do like a presentation to the whole company. I think I called it everything I've learned to date. And it was more of the soft skills kind of life stuff rather than marketing stuff. I don't think there was any marketing stuff in there. I did a separate presentation to the marketing team on basically like the same topic. And the company was nice enough to kind of throw me like a little bit of a party type thing as part of an existing quarterly celebration they were doing on a boat in Boston Harbor. So it was a nice send off. They did a really good job. And I felt bad leaving the company, but at the same time, I think it's what was best for the company. And I also built up a pretty self-sufficient marketing engine there. Basically, they needed me, but they didn't need me that much. And I think it was an okay time to leave. I'm also curious, Mike, to sort of understand your personal journey, right? Like when so much of your identity has been tied up in the company you're building and then you leave to look after yourself, what was that emotional, mental journey like for you? Yeah, I mean, that was, so COVID happened, I think two months after I left and my girlfriend at the time, she was the head of HR at ButcherBox, which is a whole nother story. So she was still working there and she was going to leave, but they really wanted her to stay. And when COVID hit, it's like, well... I can't do anything. Like we basically can't leave the house. So I might as well like work and make money. But we were living in a 500 square foot, essentially one bedroom apartment. That's about 40 square meters for non-American listeners. Yeah, it was tight. I think technically it was actually a zero bedroom because we didn't have any closets. And 
she'd be on calls at home all day and I would just be overhearing it constantly. So it was just like this constant reminder of this huge stressor in my life. That was the first time in my life that I ever got depressed. I don't know like how to say definitively that you were depressed or not, but I was, I was very, very sad for a long time and I wasn't motivated and I felt like I would never get out of it. And it made sense because I was just like alone during COVID and this massive, bright, shiny light in my life had been extinguished. And I had no idea who I was without entrepreneurship, without ButcherBox, without my team. It was incredibly scary. I thought I was going to take 90 days off and ended up taking more or less three years off. I wrote like a very short book for first-time entrepreneurs, which I don't have the courage to publish. And I started a nonprofit and I've been mentoring through Babson and Harvard, but I haven't done a whole lot. It's been a lot of trying to figure out like who I am without entrepreneurship. I mean, I still run a nonprofit, but without it being the core focus of my life. So Mike, just before we get to the advice part of this, I guess I'd love to finish up the story of your personal journey with where are you now in that journey? How have you processed the experience that you've had as a founder? And like you said, you started a nonprofit, but it looks a hell of a lot like a startup to me. So tell me about where you're at now. Yeah. I mean, I'm struggling to be honest. Like I was nervous about doing this podcast because I'm a bit of a basket case myself right now. I'm not exactly sure what to do with my life and how to be happy. I started Pepper, this nonprofit, with the goal of getting millions of people on board and creating this like massive cultural change and giving. And I just have not enjoyed working on it, at least nearly as much as I anticipated, which is like sad to admit. But I think it's mainly because it's a bit of a sobering subject. And also I'm working alone. And like, I love people. Like I love coming into ButcherBox every day, greeting everybody as they walked in, cracking jokes, going to trivia, going to Charlie's Beer Garden in Harvard Square, getting burritos. And now it's just me. And I'm making like every decision myself. It's all in my head. My wife and I are self-funding it. I'm like trying to get grants and stuff. It's really hard. All the money's going to AI. I love it when people sign up and we're definitely making a big difference already. But yeah, I'd be lying to you if I said I was happy. And if I said, I love doing this, it's very much something that I need to make the sole focus in my life, but I keep just coming back to the desk and doing work rather than doing work on myself. And I think it's because that's just how I've operated for the last 15 years of my life. And that's something that needs to be broken and rebuilt. I don't have a lot of answers, but to say that there's a lot of people struggling. And I think at the core of it is kindness, both to yourself and to others. I really think that goes a long way. And I haven't been kind to myself. Something you said in there, which we need to say more often over and over and over again, is everybody is going through something. And I think historically, business has been about putting on your professional mask and not revealing any of the chinks in the armor. It's like going to war and everyone answers the question of how you're doing with like, yeah, I'm fantastic. How's the company going? Really great. Yeah. <laughs> this is like this kind of like non-answer answer. There's only one answer. My sense is when I get to know anyone at all and they reveal anything about themselves of substance, somewhere in there is a struggle, a mental health struggle of some kind, whether it's a feeling of imposter syndrome, a feeling of being overwhelmed by their child or by their spouse, feeling like their startup is not going well or well enough, burning out, or even a little bit of denial. I've mentioned this on the podcast before, I, you know, I have anxiety and panic attacks. I think the number one takeaway from any episode like this is that this is common. Nobody mm. is alone in experiencing it. And it's only taboo and social norms that are suppressing the conversation and making you feel like maybe you're alone or you're different or weird. You said you don't have the answers. And in a sense, I don't think there are answers as such, but I think talking about it is such 
an important part of it. And yeah, Chris, your point to normalize it. I'm therapy. I'm not talking to my dad at the moment. There's a bunch of stuff. We all have our struggles, right? Making that normal is part of the answer. Talking about it and normalizing also working on yourself. So yeah, one thing I'm curious about, Mike, is you mentioned those three years where you weren't working as such and working on yourself. And this is maybe where we start to talk about, you know, what are some things that might be useful takeaways for other folks listening? What sort of things did you do to work on yourself and what did you find most valuable for you? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is I didn't do enough because I think I didn't feel valuable enough to be worked on which is very sad to say out loud, but something I think I'm still working with is self-worth. I don't know what the genesis of that was, but I certainly have some problems there. I think the most helpful thing was talking with people who love me. So my now wife, my parents, my best friends. And yeah, like both of you guys said, once you get to know somebody, you realize that you're not alone in having some struggles. It's not all rainbows. It's rarely rainbows. And I enjoy my life. I'm happy to be alive, but I also have a lot of struggles and it's almost like, I don't know, like, how did I get here? Like when I look at like a photo of myself when I'm like eight, it's like, you didn't have any of this. What happened? I honestly think actually a big part of the problem is feeling like I don't have the right to complain because I made a lot of money from ButcherBox. I'm a white dude who lives in a safe town. I have great family, a great relationship. So it's like, who am I to complain? But I've learned that like everybody has struggles. I mean, money doesn't eliminate that. You guys obviously know that, but I think for a while I didn't. And I think some people don't realize that either. It's like, just because I have a good amount of money doesn't mean I'm happy. And it doesn't mean I'm not a basket case a lot of the time. I have a big lawn. I spend half the day mowing it. I'm worried about not doing enough string trimming because my neighbors have done it three of the last four times. You know, it's like it's the stupidest things to concern myself with and spend my time on, but that's what I do. I think it was Jim Carrey who said, I wish everybody could experience being rich and famous so they could realize that it doesn't make their lives better. It's so true. There is obviously a point up until which having more money makes your life better, right? If you are struggling for food and shelter and health and this kind of thing. But there is a certain point where there is rapid diminishing returns for how much money can help you, right? Having a bigger TV doesn't let you watch better or more TV. Having a better car doesn't let you go actually much faster because there are speed limits. It doesn't get you from A to B any better or quicker. Having a bigger house doesn't give you more shelter. And in fact, these things tend to start to own you, right? You have to worry about dinging your car or cleaning your house or keeping up with the next TV. And very frankly, I'm speaking from experience. A whole bunch of new problems presented themselves as soon as money started to become something that I had in proportions that other people didn't have. Not the least of which the way other people treat you or other people expect you to treat them. You know, a lot of people I think listening to this could be feeling like, well, once I make it, or once I'm rich, or once I have this other goal achieved, then, then, then I will feel better. And I really think feeling better has to be an intrinsic thing, an intrinsic practice of gratitude or self-work or self-worth. It is something that comes from you. And again, I'm excluding people who are below certain thresholds. They absolutely need more money. But at the top end, money has these real diminishing returns. And I would just stress for people to not think that happiness is beyond some other horizon like money or a goal. I think money solves a certain class of problem, but it also doesn't solve other classes of problem. And so if you think it's going to solve all of your problems, it's not going to. I have seen some of the people who I know who have become the most oddball or having most mental health problems are the people who have been the most successful. Uh, there is one person I can think of specifically. We could use Elon Musk as an example, but 
someone else who I know has been very, very successful. Angel invested in all the household names you've ever heard of, made tons of money, and has really basically gone off to the bush to try to find himself. And I suspect it's because he realized, I have, for all intents and purposes, infinity money, and I have still not found happiness. And so I need to go talk to shamans and spiritualists and things like that. The worst kind of problem that money can give you is this existential crisis of, holy shit, what's left? <laughs> like, if this isn't making me happy, what's left? We're having a conversation about money, but I think it's about more than money. It is about achieving your goals and the dark side of that, right? Because I think a lot of us are conditioned to say, okay, I'm feeling bad, but if I achieve this goal, then that feeling will go away. And that goal, especially in our Western capitalist societies, is often tied to money, but it can be tied to other forms of success, right? Oh, my startup was really successful, regardless of money. I get married and have children, whatever it is, right? I'm famous, I'm on TV. What happens is when you achieve that goal and you realize it hasn't solved your problem, it's an extinguishment of a certain type of hope, right? You're like, ah, I pinned everything on this type of success, on this achievement, and it didn't give me what I was hoping to, and now I'm a bit lost. And that is scary, right? There's that old saying, wherever you go, there you are. It's a way of trying to run away to say, okay, this external accomplishment will somehow deal with the problem that is actually inside me. And it rarely does that. That exact phrase is what we've been using recently, my wife and I, because we're talking about moving to New York. And I said, remember, sweetheart, wherever we go, that's where we are. We may benefit from and enjoy and thrive in New York, but it won't solve some of these feelings of lack or of concern or of boredom, actually. And this constant need to be doing the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. You know, our relationship slogan is what's next. And I think part of that is a little bit toxic, right? It's we are never content. Can't believe you have a relationship slogan. You know, it's like a relationship song. You don't go <laughs> and get one, but you end up falling into one. We didn't go and pick a relationship slogan, but we fell into one. Okay. So, yeah, I think this has been a really deep and intense conversation, which is great. Again, Mike, I know you said you don't have the answers, but what you have is what you've learned on your own journey and what people can take away from that. So I guess a couple of questions around that. Reflecting back on your time, what are some of the warning signs that you would advise our listeners if they're focused on their startup, they're working really hard? What are some of the warning signs that you feel they should be watching out for? I think health is a big one. I mean, I think I had one cavity in my life up until working at ButcherBox. And then I went to the dentist and I had eight. And I was like, that's not, that can't be my x-ray. Like, would you mind like looking at that again? And they're like, nope, uh, th this is definitely yours. I was just grinding my teeth like way, way down in the night and just getting these like terrible cavities. Maybe you should, you know, go to the dentist and see how many cavities you have. But I think a bigger one is just how much time do you actually have for yourself each day? I know there was some study that came out, I think somewhat recently that says the sweet spot is between, I think, two and four hours of free time and the rest you want to be doing active things like work, for instance, could be one of them. I was reminded on the trip to Moab by someone on my marketing team that I was like apparently checking in with everybody and making sure that they have 60 minutes a day. And he was like, I can't believe that that's the number. You were hoping that we just had like one hour where we weren't working. And like, that just shows you like how messed up I was, or at least like how singularly focused I was on work. And it makes me really sad that I was, I mean, I thought I was doing something nice. That's like the scary part. Like I thought I was like looking out for my people by making sure that they had 60 minutes to themselves a day. Obviously people need more than 60 minutes. One thing that has worked for me that I've learned since leaving is engaging in what I would call like a flow activity. So something that 
is so consuming that you can't think about anything else. For me, it's like playing soccer or surfing or swimming or playing tennis. Like I can't run. I can think about work the entire run. I can't walk. I can think about work the entire walk. It needs to be something that really is like demanding every area of your brain and body. So I think if you're someone who really wants to escape for a minute, pick up a flow activity or like a flow sport. You'll know it when you find it because you'll come out of the water and you'll be like, oh, I haven't thought about anything but trying to catch a wave for the last two and a half hours. Like, that's really nice. For me, it's driving, spirited driving specifically. So, you know, driving fast, but within the speed limit for any police who are listening. And I, I describe it as when you're doing other things in life, particularly being a founder, but any other life activity, typically, you put an input in and the output can take hours, days, weeks, or months to occur. But when you're doing a sport or, you know, driving, the input output is instant. And that tickles something in our reptilian brain where, as you say, it uses your whole brain and it forces you to focus or to go into flow. And you, as you said, Mike, I think if you end the activity and you realize, wow, a whole bunch of time has passed and I didn't even think about work, you're on the right track. My go-to for years and years and years since I was a kid was watching TV shows and movies. I just like watch hours of TV shows and movies. But I think that it's actually not as good as I think it is. I, I've always thought of it like a heat sink, something that lets me decompress and distract myself. But because you're sitting down in a room in front of a screen, I think it actually contributes to sadness, depression, or despondency in some cases. And so I do think it has to be more proactive out of the house, getting out and doing something different. And that's a mistake I make to this day. And I need to spend more time out of the house. I'm a bit of an introvert when it comes to that kind of thing. I'm also curious about asking for help. I think that's something that is important. And you talked about your family and friends and people you cared about. How did you find the experience of asking for help? What advice can you give on the best ways to seek that help? And perhaps what would you do differently next time in that regard? I think the biggest thing I would do differently is ask earlier and don't be afraid of what they're going to say, because if there's someone who really loves you and wants you to be successful, they're going to say the right things. When I talked to my parents about it last week and I told them that like, hey, I don't know if I have the right headspace right now to at least by myself, go make Pepper this like really big thing. Because like my, my dad had said to me when an article came out about Pepper, like, oh, like I feel like maybe I survived that motorcycle accident so that you could be born and start Pepper. And I was like, oh, man, like that's, that's, that's a lot of pressure. So I was kind of nervous about kind of having that conversation with my parents, but my dad was just like, well, like how much money have you donated already? And I was like, well, like about $6,000. He's like, what does it cost to save a life with the charities you're working with? And I'm like, less than 4,000. He's like, all right, well, you've already saved the life in a few months. That's pretty cool. So he just had like the opposite reaction of what I thought he could, even though I knew like deep down he was going to say something really encouraging. I think it was just me reading into too much of a single comment he made when clearly he's just trying to be supportive and enthusiastic. But I just kept spinning it around in my head and feeling guilty about not getting as far as I wanted to with it. Well, I think it's a really interesting story about your dad because getting help from people who care about you is not the same as getting unconditional support for what you're doing. I think that's an interesting thing, right? Like sometimes the instinct can be like, I just want you to tell me that I'm doing the right thing. And to your point, that can actually make the pressure more intense. Sometimes you need to get people to tell you the truth about what something is doing for you. And for me, some of the most valuable conversations I've had about my own balance have not been easy conversations, but they've been conversations that have centered my well-being rather than the success of my goals at the center. I totally agree with that. And that happened within the same conversation where my mom, you know, we were just on this trip together for a week in Croatia. And when I brought this up, she said, yeah, I mean, 
it's clear that you have like a lot of problems right now. And I was like, whoa, like I, I didn't, I had no idea that she could like see that, but clearly she already knew without me even saying anything. That was a wake up call for me. Is there anything else in the realm of advice or things you've learned that you wanted to share through this journey? Yeah, there's a, a little passage I was hoping to read. It wouldn't take more than 60 seconds. Please do. Okay, cool. So to give a little context, each summer between the ages of 13 to 16, I would go to this hour bound camp in New Hampshire, which was like seven weeks long, and they would have tree talks once a week where a counselor would give a talk on something that they're passionate about. And I actually wasn't there for this tree talk, but it's one of the more famous tree talks, and it's just an excerpt from it. But it's by Owen Fink, and it's called, What Do You Want to Be When You Grow Up? Just this May, I graduated from college, so I frequently asked myself what I wanted to be. The more I thought about it, the more any anxieties I might have felt faded. They faded because I began to realize that I know the answer to the question. It's not the kind of answer that parents or even friends are looking for when they ask it, but it's an answer that I know deep down in my heart. I want to be a good friend. I want to be honest with myself and with others. I want to be someone who loves looking at clouds. I want to smile more than I frown. What do you want to be when you grow up? There are two types of answers to this question. One type changes with the situation, but the other stays the same no matter where you are. I know which type is more important to me. That's why it doesn't bother me that I don't know whether I want to be a banker, a baker, an astronaut, or an artist, because I know what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be someone who people turn to when they need help. I want to be someone who stops on a clear night to look at the stars. I want to be someone who appreciates good music. I want to be someone who listens to the wind. What do you want to be? So I come back to that when I'm getting really stressed with work because it reminds me that like I'll always be me. And that's really valuable to me. And that makes me happy. And like Pepper can shut down tomorrow. I'll have me. ButcherBox could have shut down the first week. Like I'll have me. And I think remembering yourself outside of your work self is maybe the most important thing. Wherever you go, there you are. And so make sure that that you is someone that you like, that you think is doing the right things and prioritizing the right things. That's really beautiful, Mike. I'm reminded of a wise man. I think his name was Yanev once said, you want to care a lot, but not too much. <laughs> and I think that's true, right? Of your startup. It's not who you are. It's what you're working on. It's what you're doing. But you as an individual are enough in and of yourself. And I think that's really important to remember for everybody. Mike, it's been so generous of you and so brave of you to be so honest and forthright on this episode. Thank you so much for doing that. This is going to be the first of a series of conversations we'll have about this. And I think starting with such a frank and honest journey from a founder, the people we really speak to on the show is the exact right place to start before we start getting academic about it or trying to deal with solutions about it. So thank you so, so much for doing this with us. Thank you both. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a little nervous about like how much I put myself out there, but I'm happy I did. That was kind of my goal coming into this conversation. I knew I didn't have any silver bullets for people, but I knew that I could be honest and I know that I've been through some shit and I came out the other side and I like who I am. I just need to figure some stuff out. So yeah, hopefully it's useful to some of your listeners. It absolutely will be. I have no doubt. And, you know, you talk about wanting to be a good friend, you're being a good friend to people who you've never even met. So it's incredibly valuable. Now, just before we finish up, 
This is maybe a slight change of tone, but we'd love to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about Pepper and what you're working on so that folks who may want to help out with your mission there can do that. Sounds good. So yeah, I started this nonprofit called Pepper and I created it because after I left ButcherBox, I wanted to donate a meaningful amount of the money to charity, but I wanted to make sure that the money was really going to make an impact. And I ended up reading this book called The Life You Can Save by Peter Singer, which my wife recommended. And the book has some problems, I think, in that Peter basically says that you shouldn't spend a dollar on yourself if you don't need to, because there's so much need in other parts of the world. I read this book and the big thing I really took away from it beyond the guilt I felt, which I wrestled with for a while, was that a very small amount of money can actually make a really big difference in low-income countries, especially when it's on like preventative health interventions, such as preventing people from dying of malaria or giving kids vitamin A supplements so that they don't go blind from vitamin A deficiency, which costs like $2 a year. I donated some of these charities and I felt good about it, but I really wanted to raise awareness that, hey, like other people can get on board with this and you don't need a lot of money to make a big difference. So I started Pepper. It's a subscription for giving. The only option is to give $10 a month. 100% of the donation goes directly to four amazing charities that I partnered with. We take a 0% fee. I don't make any money from this. I lose money from this. But I wanted to create something that was stupid, simple, easy for people to start making a difference in a really big way with a very small amount of money. So if you want to sign up, it's joinpepper.org. And no worries if you don't want to. It's just there for people who are interested in giving but don't know where to start. Oh, great shirt. I love that movie. Felt appropriate for <laughs> what we're talking about. For those not looking at the video, Yanev is wearing I Am Kenneth, the shirt from the Barbie movie. Yeah, I think I saw maybe an Instagram post or a LinkedIn post with you wearing that, and I definitely liked it. It made me very happy. Everyone go see Barbie. I actually really love the concept of just making it that simple with charitable giving. The friction is often around making decisions, how much to give, who to give it to, all of that. And it's like, okay, someone else is doing the thinking for me. And so I think if you can build that trust that you are thinking well, is put that 10 bucks a month and something good gets done with it. I think that's really great. Thanks so much, Mike, again, for sharing your story. I'm sure it has a big positive impact and it's the start of a lot of conversations and a lot of hopefully powerful self-reflections from folks who are listening to this. So once again, really appreciate your openness and vulnerability. I think it's a fantastic thing that you're doing. Thank you. Yeah, and I guess the last thing I'd like to say is if you want to talk to me, I'm talking to you, listener. If this resonated with you or you think I can be helpful, feel free to just connect on LinkedIn. Do add a note saying that you listen to the show because I do have a lot of people who try to connect you then just try to sell me stuff but I'd be happy to chat with you. So feel free to reach out. Unless you're trying to sell him stuff. Don't do that. <laughs> Unless it's something awesome. Yeah, yeah. If you want to spend something awesome, definitely reach out. All right, guys. So as I mentioned, we will be doing a number of episodes on this topic. And so if it's of interest to you, please don't forget the Startup Podcast Pact, where we ask you to please sign up to the mailing list, follow us on your favorite podcast app and rate and review the show. It really helps us get the word out and help us help more founders. All right, Yanev, Mike, thank you so much for another great episode. Of course, thank you for letting me share. Thanks again. And remember, folks, you are Knuff. <laughs>